when we say red tide, we're referring to Karenia brevis. And we're concerned about it because Karenia brevis produces a neurotoxin called brevitoxin, and that can accumulate in shellfish. Hello, and welcome to the From Urban to Ag podcast. I am so glad to have you here. The goal of this podcast is to answer questions consumers have about agriculture, food, environmental sciences, and natural resources, connect listeners to experts within these industries who can provide science-based information and answers, and lastly, to share the narrative of agriculture because it is broad and diverse and intriguing. In these podcast episodes, you can expect to learn about several different industries and disciplines such as swine production, agricultural communication, dairy production, agribusiness, and so much more. Thank you for listening. Now on to the episode. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the From Urban to Ag podcast. So before we get into today's topic and introducing our speaker, I have to share something exciting with you. In the last two months, we have officially reached over a thousand plays in just two months. That is crazy. So thank you so, so much to all of my loyal listeners out there. I am astounded and amazed and so grateful. So if you've been enjoying the podcast, please continue to like our social media pages. It can be found at From Urban to Ag on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Uh, share it with your friends. If anyone is either from one of the industries or just interested in learning about new and different topics that are relevant. And don't forget to rate the podcast on your favorite podcasting app. Now, what is today's episode about? I'm glad you asked. So today's episode is another one that has been supported by grant funding from the Thompson Earth Systems Institute and was made in partnership with the Florida Sea Grant. So speaking with us today, we have Betty Stogler, who is an extension agent and works with the Sea Grant Marine Extension Program in Charlotte County. She specializes in boating and waterways management, coastal wetland habitat restoration, and marine and fishery resource management. But today, she's going to be speaking with us about red tide, also known as harmful algal blooms, what they are, why it's a concern, and how it affects both water-dependent businesses and coastal tourism. Without further ado, let's get into the podcast. So Betty, I just want to say a quick thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us today on red tide and water quality. It's a topic that You know, I didn't hear a ton about until moving to Florida, but I think everyone should know about it. And I'm excited to speak with you today. Great. So just jumping right into some of the general questions. Can you begin by just telling us about your current position, how you got to where you are today, and what got you interested in Red Tide? Okay. So my current position is Florida Sea Grant Extension Agent with the University of Florida. And as part of that um, position, I am also the Harmful Algal Bloom Liaison with NOAA and COS um, with their HAB Forecasting Modeling Group. Um, so what got me interested in the topic, I guess where how I got to where I am today is really a function of ge- ge- geography. Um, I'm located in Southwest Florida, so I am an extension agent in Charlotte County, which is sandwiched between Fort Myers and Tampa. 
And it's really ground zero for Karenia brevis red tide blooms. And so that became a major emphasis um, for the people that I work with as an extension agent. They're very concerned about um, these Karenia brevis blooms. And so, and then more recently, um, we also started experiencing cyanobacteria blooms that are discharged to the coast via freshwater releases from Lake Okeechobee. So I'm kind of surrounded by harmful algal blooms and that just lent itself to a major program for me. That was great. Thank you very much. And you mentioned you mentioned being a liaison between um, two other companies. I think one was NOAA. Can you briefly explain what those two organizations are? So, um, so yeah, I'm a I'm a harmful algal bloom liaison with NOAA's National Centers for Coastal Ocean Sciences, and it's specifically the group within that focuses on harmful algal bloom forecasting. So using remote um, the, the satellites and modeling to forecast and predict harmful algal blooms. And then the Sea Grant College program is a national program that is a federal state and local partnership program. And in Florida, we're housed at the University of Florida and we're part of um, the Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. So in that realm, I am an extension agent. I'm kind of the, the liaison between the science that happens at the academic in the academic world, and I work with end users to make sure they have access to that science, but also that they have input into what's happening in the academic world, because ultimately we want the products that we're creating for end users to be used. And so it's kind of a two-way street. And then the same happens in the liaison world with NOAA is I'm kind of the boots on the ground. So they're developing these models and tools and I bring those out into the community, um, make sure people are aware of them, but then also generate feedback and take that back to NOAA so that they can make more useful tools that get used. Fantastic. Fantastic. I'm glad uh, I was someone that didn't know a lot about extension and extension agents and what they do. So I'm sure our listeners also have some questions. So thank you for kind of highlighting how your job is, like you said, basically bringing research and information to the community, but also getting their feedback to bring back to these organizations. I think that's great. Moving into probably the most important question of the day, what is Red Tide and why is it an issue? Sure. So red tide, the, the term red tide is kind of a colloquial term. It's a, it's a common name, if you will, used to describe different phenomena that's associated with the growth and accumulation of a single-celled algae. So there's no species red tide. What we're characterizing is the discoloration of the water and the harm that these blooms cause. So in uh, when we say red tide, we're referring to a particular species of dinoflagellate called Karenia brevis. And we're concerned about it because Karenia brevis produces a neurotoxin called brevitoxin. And that brevitoxin can accumulate in shellfish. It can also aerosolize. Um, so it can attach itself to a water vapor and become airborne and cause respiratory distress amongst people. And then as the red tide cells start to die and decompose, they can also, the, the biological activity, all the little microbes that are feeding on it, 
can suck all the oxygen out of the water and create these low dissolved oxygen events, which can cause fish kills. So there's a lot of um, human health concerns, ecosystem concerns, and then those generate economic concerns because people don't want to be out on the beach or out on the water fishing or kayaking or boating. So Absolutely. Societal concerns. Yeah. The second you said neurotoxin, correct? I believe you said those words. The second you said that, I'm like, that sounds serious. That would be disconcerting, as you said, to to several different people in the community. Um, This is actually a question we got from online. And usually I kind of do an overview of the issue and then do all the online questions at the end. But I feel like this is a perfect time to ask it. One of our online members wanted to know does red tide affect shellfish? And from your answer, I'm taking, I'm, I heard a yes. And are there certain times a year that consumers shouldn't buy or eat shellfish due to the effects of red tide? So yeah, that's an excellent question. So the brevitoxins do accumulate in shellfish. It will not kill the shellfish. And so we do need to be concerned when there is an active Karenia brevis bloom that we're not consuming shellfish from an area that is currently experiencing the bloom. And so in Florida, um, and I can't speak to other areas, but I'm sure it's probably the same throughout the Gulf of Mexico, which is where Karenia blooms occur. There is ongoing water testing all the time, even when there's not a red tide bloom, to make sure that we are catching blooms as soon as they occur, because they don't always make the water turn red or, or discolored. Um, and so as soon as the cell counts reach a certain number, which is 5,000, sub 5,000 cell counts per liter, then we go under a shellfish closure. And that is managed by the Florida Department of Ag and Consumer Services through the um, Shellfish Aquaculture group and, or the division of aquaculture, I should say. And so those water, the the shellfish harvesting waters can open and close daily. And once they close, they're not going to reopen until both the water and the shellfish are safe to eat. Um, So they're testing the meat samples of shellfish before they ever open those areas back up. And it's really a precautionary closure because they're, they're closing at a cell count that's much um, lower than what is going to cause harm. And so we're very protected as a result of the the rules that are in place. Um, The onus of course is on people to know that they need to recognize where their shellfish harvesting waters are and then go to the division of aquaculture and see whether those shellfish harvesting areas are open and closed. But the point that I do want to make is that we shouldn't limit our shellfish consumption even during red tide blooms as long as we're buying from reputable places. So if you're buying your shellfish from a a shellfish, um, a seafood market or from a restaurant, that shellfish will have been harvested from an area that has been free of red tide. And you can always ask where your shellfish came from. And um, if you're buying like a bag of shellfish from a grocery store, it'll have the tag on it where you can see not only it came from Pine Island Sound, you can tell what lease it was on 
and what farmer it came from. And so there's a, a, a lot of tracing that goes into making sure that when we're eating shellfish, we're eating safe. I very much appreciate that you made that distinction. That was going to be one of my follow-up questions about, you know, from a consumer standpoint, how can they know where they got it? How do they know if it's safe? Is it from a grocery store? Is it safe to consume? So I'm really glad you made a point to address that because I think a lot of people, that's, you know, ultimately what comes down to is their buying decision and knowing that the food they're consuming is safe. So just, I guess, one last follow-up question based on that is I understand you mentioned how it also can affect fish. So all kinds of marine life. And there is, I know some people have personal preference between wild caught fish versus farmed fish. Is there any difference between the effect on red tide on the two different kinds of fish? Um, so our farm raised fish right now is land-based. So red tide is not going to affect those. Uh, red tide will affect fish that are out swimming in our estuaries and in the Gulf of Mexico, but the toxins are accumulating in the guts of the fish, which is a part that we don't eat. So as long as you are properly cleaning your fish and filleting your fish and not consuming the gut parts and making sure that you're not contaminating um, as you're filleting your fish, that fish, as long as it was Healthy when it was um, caught is safe to eat during the red tide bloom. But certainly if it's kind of floundering around and, you know, and you're catching it hook and line, you see that fish when you when you bring it in. You know, anytime a fish is acting funky, I would not want to consume it because you don't know if it's acting that way because it's been exposed to the brevitoxins, which, again, would not necessarily be a concern but it could have been exposed to something else. And so mm -hmm. without that knowledge, I would leave that fish alone. <laughs> I think that is a very, that's a very safe sound advice. So getting back to some of our, you know, the next question to kind of give everyone an overview of the issue and what you do and how they can get involved. I understand that, that you have several outreach programs in relationship to this issue. Uh, can you tell listeners a little bit about what those programs are? Sure. Um, so as part of the, the have liaison position or harmful algal bloom liaison position, when I say have, that's what I'm referring to. Um, we do have a citizen science monitoring program, which is geared towards um, describing the respiratory conditions at individual beaches. So red tide is patchy. It comes on shore in patches. And the, the effect of brevitoxin is really dependent upon the concentration within an area, but also the winds and the, the direction, um, whether it's blowing onshore or blowing offshore. And so we have these volunteers that will go out and collect a water sample. They'll take a video of it under a, a microscope and then send it to scientists and they can develop models that um, take the cell counts and the wind speed and direction and make predictions out to three days, which beaches are more favorable and at what times of the day, because of course we know that there's sea breezes that come on shore in the afternoon. So oftentimes it's the mornings, but not always that are better for going to the beach. So it's really geared at giving people the information they need to be able to make those, those good decisions. 
And then another program that I have, it's, it's a little bit away from Karenia brevis, but it's called Eyes on Seagrass, and it's really geared around a different type of algae concern, and that is macro algae or the big algae that you can see and hold in your hands. And, and this, just like Karenia brevis, can be harmful because it shades out our bottom seagrass habitats, and um, it is better at using nutrients. And so it becomes kind of an early warning that there's something happening in the system. So I have volunteers that go out and monitor seagrass, they they monitor these seagrass sites twice a year. And with that, we're, we're looking at changes in abundance and distribution over time. So I guess that's just a couple of, of projects that I do. Yeah. Absolutely. And if someone listening is a Florida resident who wants to get involved um, with this issue or any of your programs, can they get more information on that somewhere online? Um, probably not so much online. I, I, you know, I do have a blog, um, blogs.ifis. And um, there is the Florida Sea Grant does have a great website that um, we try to highlight different projects on. But mostly they would probably just want to reach out to to me directly um, via email or they could reach out to any of their Sea Grant extension agents or any of their UFIFAS extension agents, whether it's horticulture or family and consumer science, and just let them know I have an interest in X and um, any agent in the state of Florida is going to be really helpful and try to connect people who are interested in a particular topic to the people who can help them get engaged. Perfect. Perfect. The beauty of extension agents and cooperative extension right there. Yes, it is. (laughs) So our last question from online members was, and I think you briefly mentioned it early on, but uh, what industries are most affected by red tide or harmful algal blooms. I'm going to try to use the correct terminology. <laughs> oh, yay. Okay. So um, I'm going to say it's it's really tourism and our water-dependent businesses, which are really tied. Those two things are really tied together. So I'm talking about um, hotels, like your waterfront hotels, your restaurants, um, that, that take a large hit when we have red tide events. But also um, for higher fishing guides, the commercial fishermen, um, our shellfish aquaculture folks, and then the businesses that serve these, these um, types of industries, such as bait and tackle shops, um, other types of tourism like you know, stand-up paddleboard, kayaking, anything that's related to the water. Um, is going to be affected by a red tide. And sometimes it trickles out because, you know, if, if you're coming from Idaho and you hear that there's a red tide bloom in Florida, all of Florida is affected. So they may not even want to go to Disney World because... Oh my goodness. <laughs> we, just, we don't know how to put that in perspective. So there mm-hmm. is a major trickle effect that goes beyond, you know, the, the core tourism and water dependent uses. I think that's so funny. But I mean, that's like you said, it's hard to put in perspective the scope of an issue and try to make people feel safe when, you know, 
one issue can impact the entire state just as a whole. So that is an important distinction to be made. So my last question for you today would be if you could tell consumers one thing, consumers, Florida residents, whoever's listening, if you can tell them one thing about Florida water quality or harmful algal blooms, what would it be? I think I would say that we're all, we're all, we all have a role in water quality and sometimes it's really easy to point our fingers at the big users like agriculture or industry, but there's far more people in Florida than there are farms or businesses. And so the things that we're doing individually seem small, but collectively are huge. So we really need to be thinking about water quality with everything that we do, because we're all tied to the coast. We're all tied to water. I think that is so well put. It's always interesting to see how people feel connected to water more than they than they sometimes know they are. And I think what you mentioned can apply to a lot of different industries and a lot of different issues with people, you know, having to realize that your individual actions and your individual decisions can help these issues. So thank you so very much for your time today and for speaking with us all. And I'm sure all the information in this was invaluable to some of the people listening and hopefully they reach out and feel inspired to get involved with some of these movements and programs. (laughs) Great. Well, there you have it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of From Urban to Ag. More information and additional resources from today's episode can be found on my website, www.fromurbantoag.com. If you have any questions or comments about information presented in this episode, please get in touch via the contact tab on my website. If you enjoyed this episode and don't want to miss the next one, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Until next time. Have a great day.